AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 29th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasure for cyber threats. Today I'm joined by Matt Kaiser, and uh, Matt, you were away last week, busy. Uh, yeah, busy. It was, it was kind of a, I want to call it a vacation, but it was actually a class, uh, learning about software-defined radio, which is a really interesting cool. field, yeah. a way of um, using computers to tune to large areas of, of broadcasted radio, decode the signals there, and pull mm -hmm. information out. Yeah, I've, I've looked at that. You know, it's, a, it's really an amazing transition. I happen to have a background in electrical engineering, so it's always been components and RF, and now the transition to software-defined radio really expands the capability of what you can do with a given radio system. So very interesting stuff. Hope you got a lot from that. And uh, also joined here in the studio with uh, John Hogeboom. And John, what are you going to talk about today? Oh, uh, so we have a couple of stories. Um, one about software vulnerabilities and specific type of product set uh, that should be interesting, um, and we've got some other story. Another story I'll, I'll cover as well. But, All right. Yep. Okay. Good. Well, I'm Brian Rexroad, and thanks for joining us. And uh, I guess we'll go first to Matt here, and uh, I guess HP did a little bit of a study looking at. You know, we've been talking a lot about the Internet of Things or the Internet of Insecure Things. So. What can you tell us about their findings? Sure, so HP released a report, um, sort of a state of the Internet of Things report, and their numbers state that about 70% of the top um, most popular Internet of Things devices had some form of vulnerability, you know, password vulnerabilities and things like that. Um, their methodology is a little interesting in my opinion. Um, they took the top 10 devices, judged mm -hmm. by whatever criteria they had, in a number of different uh, arenas of Internet of Things type devices, and they actually took them to the workbench and gave them, well, the works, I guess you could call it. Tried to look at the web interfaces to them, mm -hmm. watch the traffic going in and out of them. If they had cloud components, tried to audit whether or not you know credentials are being sent in the clear or not, right. the whole gamut. I find it interesting that they're, they're throwing numbers around like 70% when they have a sample mm -hmm. size of only 10, but I also understand that doing a penetration test, and it is a penetration test on mm -hmm. devices like these, does take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have liked to see a larger sample set and maybe some of the less popular devices in there as well. They didn't state which devices they chose, but if you take a look at their article, they mentioned 10 different categories and they tested 10 different devices. So if you happen to know a little bit about each field, like smart thermostats, for example, you could right. probably pick out which devices they most likely tested. Right, right. So. Uh, I'm actually a little surprised. I think you were a little skeptical about the 70 number. Is it, I, why not 100? <laughs> I mean, I would tend to think that 100% of them probably have some sort of vulnerabilities. Now, the question is, do we know about it? Has it been exposed yet? But uh, it, it, did they happen to talk about what types of tests did they? You mentioned the authentication, things like that. But you know, we've seen certainly a lot of cases where they're responding to DNS, for example, and shouldn't be, or NTP, or other uh, services that have been used in reflection attack activity. Would they consider that to be a vulnerability? Uh, the ones they listed here are privacy concerns. You know, mm -hmm. if credentials are being sent insecurely back home, if there's some sort of unique ide device identifier that's mm -hmm. being sent back home as well, uh, insufficient authorization, 
which is whether or not they've got a real password um, policy. You know, mm -hmm. if the device prevents you from setting a four-character password, right. you know, sort of protecting against the user's own mm -hmm. mistakes. Uh, lack of transport encryption, so if they're not using SSL when they call home or when you talk to the web interface. Uh, insecure web interface, so mm -hmm. the entire gamut of web application right, right. security problems there. And then inadequate software protection, which is updates to the, to the firmware if they're not encrypted and right. protected on the way in and out, which allows someone to grab them, unpack them completely, uh, make modifications, and re-upload mm -hmm. insecure firmware. Okay. So there's, they did a lot of testing, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it sounds like a, a good repertoire. I guess a couple of things that still hit my pet peeve list. In fact, uh, I, I have a list of perhaps five things that any uh, internet of thing or in network connected device should have. One is that the notion of default password, I think, needs to evaporate. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, at least have it tied to a serial number or something so that you have to guess a lot harder to be able to get to it. Um, and then the second, ideally, you'd have actually a random password that's, you know, if you, if you lose it, you go back to registration or it's printed on a sticker or something on it so that you have to physically have the device to know. And then the second one would be updates, software updates need to be very simple. They, the notion of, you know, download a file, put it here, upload it there, turn it off, reset, pray. You know, it just doesn't really make sense to me. So um, it doesn't sound like they address those two topics. No. Is that right? Um, it seems like they were going for a wide swath. They right. may have hit individual ones, but it's not listed here. Mm -hmm. One thing I did want to bring up that I thought was interesting is that um, one of the authors of the study actually worked with the OWASP group, the Open Web Ap Application Security Project, mm -hmm. who is known for their top 10 OWASP vulnerabilities lists. Right, right. Um, they now have a top 10 vulnerabilities for the Internet of Things list, mm -hmm. which I think will go a long way in convincing producers of these kind of devices to make these sorts of changes in their products. Right. Okay. Good. So there's uh, there's vulnerabilities per se, and it sounds like that was sort of the focus of their study. Mm -hmm. And uh, But in order to make things more secure, it's more than just fixing vulnerabilities. And I think, you know, for example, being able to update the software easily is an opportunity to be able to fix a vulnerability that's discovered perhaps later in the life cycle of the device. So. Very interesting. I think it's uh, it's encouraging that folks are starting to pay attention to this, and we'll be able to proceed forward. Make you know, some my progress. observation of it is there's a little bit of a, uh, a twofold angle here. Like you said, some of the authentication mechanisms are not very good, but mm -hmm. then I think there's also a lot of cases where users are making bad choices on how to set up and deploy these devices in their mm -hmm. network. So they drop these, particularly with the uh, security camera DVR systems, we know they just drop them in. They go to their firewall, they say, let me make this a DMZ device so anything on the outside can get into it because mm -hmm. it's too complicated for me to figure out how to do port forwarding or whatever. I don't know what their <laughs> issue is there, but they open all the ports up, Telnet, right. SSH, the web interface, everything, so that um, you know, anybody on the outside who's scanning could potentially find it and you know, get into it at some point. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, a lot of these devices, they actually are made to be very user-friendly from a certain perspective. That's the initial configuration right. and working mm -hmm. out. But then the user would never know, for example, if there's a debug port that's opened on right, it, or right. that there even was a need to have an update. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. that's what I said. It's kind of a twofold. The user kind of making a bad choice on how to expose it to the internet, mm -hmm. but then you know they don't have the insight. It's the vendor's fault for opening and exposing all these ports that probably the users are not aware of that are open on it. Right. Uh, yeah. But the it, bad I mean, guys. An aren't. individual consumer shouldn't have to do a security assessment right. of a device they buy off the shelf. So. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that's a, like I said. 
I think it's encouraging that some folks are starting to pay attention to this. Now, I think hopefully in the future they'll get a little more specific in terms of the reporting about, and perhaps maybe they're working with the vendors about these vulnerabilities so that they're not exposed prior to having uh, fixed opportunities for those, for those vendors. So that's a good thing, absolutely. So the next topic here, I guess uh, devices aren't the only thing with vulnerabilities associated with them. And uh, so John, what yeah, can you Yeah, good segue. Us? So we talked about appliances and these Internet of Things, devices being vulnerable to security vulnerabilities. Researcher from Coase Inc., I'm not sure how you pronounce that organization, uh, presented a, a presentation at the SciScan 360 conference in China uh, just recently, I think mm -hmm. actually a few weeks ago, uh, on some research he's done of antivirus vendors. So interesting you know, um, area to explore here, antivirus. A lot of us run it on our machines, and oftentimes these antivirus software programs have uh, elevated privileges. Usually they're running a system or root, whatever you want to call it, on mm -hmm. the system so that they can do what they need to do to protect the system. Right. However, they're not infallible either. So that is one of his uh, findings here. So he found, 14 vulnerab found vulnerabilities in 14 different antivirus vendors. Um, it's a pretty extensive uh, set of slides he has. I'd recommend you go check it out to find out mm -hmm. which vendors have issues or which ones are the most egregious types of uh, vulnerabilities. But he pointed out a lot of the interesting failures or things that probably are expected when you really think about it, um, uh, but probably the, the, um, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, of uh, the types of vulnerabilities found. So uh, number one, like I said, requiring overly extensive privileges. You know, mm -hmm. the software is running a system. Uh, coding bugs, so we found just in general poor coding where you'd get either, you know, buffer or integer type overflows that could be, you know, leveraged to, you know, execute some mm -hmm. kind of do remote code execution right. or arbitrary execution of code. Uh, OS kernel drivers that have elevated privileges that you can do local privilege es escalation through by kind of tricking them or injecting into them. The other interesting one, file format parser bugs. I know we've seen that a lot with various things, so either you know, maybe you've got a signature that you receive from an antivirus vendor and you load it in. Well, they have to parse that file that they have. And if you make a rogue one mm -hmm. uh, or try to mess around with it in a format that they don't expect to get, it can cause a problem. They also noticed um, one vendor with just a, a regular executable, somebody had modified some of the header information and a real executable such that it tripped up the mm. antivirus to crash because it wasn't expecting I mean, it's a non-working executable. Like it starts executable. to look like an executable, right. but it's not once you start to follow down the path of how right. long is this file and, and whatnot. Uh, the other interesting things, not signing the product updates. So uh, a lot of vendors just grab the product updates over HTTP, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not even encrypted, plus they don't even sign any of the, the code updates so that mm -hmm. you know it's coming from an authentic source, which certain actors have leveraged both mm -hmm. of those in tandem to kind of do a man in the middle and inject their own information back to right. the end client Take antivirus out all the software. signatures for their own malware, right? Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, the other observation he made was that a lot of the AV engines don't have their own kind of self-protection, so they didn't code in things to look for you know, attacks against yeah. their own software and they're kind of relying on operating system dependent things like address space, mm -hmm. layer randomization, and data execution prevention. Some of those didn't even have those enabled on their mm -hmm. products either, so that they could, you know, you could leverage exploits against them in that way as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so interesting report. Um, you know, I guess one of those things to think about when you are installing, I'm not saying don't run antivirus, 
but just like any other software package out there, um, everything yeah. has vulnerabilities. Humans are behind it writing the code. Nobody's infallible. They should try to be as infallible as possible or, and right. do some code audits. That's another thing he mentions is, you know, it's probably not a lot of code auditing going on here because mm -hmm. some of these uh, vulnerabilities are not that hard to find. Um, yeah, they, you know, there are a few things here. One, it, it, this whole thing sort of really just exemplifies this whole notion that adding software fundamentally, you know, ideally in a, or theoretically at the very least, cannot improve security. That right. is, as you add more software, it introduces the potential for more mistakes. And what it's really suggesting here is there perhaps are more mistakes going on than uh, than we perhaps anticipated. That is, you know, you you like to think that when you're preaching to the choir, that the choir is actually you know, in belief, and th this is a case here where perhaps the security vendors need to learn a little bit about doing security. So, right. um, and you know, I guess this is uh, this is a fundamentally the you know a situation that is going to exist in other organizations as well. They really need to uh, uh, get some emphasis around the security topic. Now, I guess in their defense, I can appreciate the point where they're trying to keep the product to be viable. So I think one of the things you'd mentioned earlier about things like buffer overflows, from what I understand of the article, they were saying that a lot of them are coded in C, mm -hmm. and the intent there is most likely to keep the thing efficient. That is, right. if you're running antivirus on your computer and it's getting bogged down because of you know a, a, a highly abstract language is not particularly it's efficient. Language or right. Like that, yeah. What it, what you're going to end up with is. A, a dissatisfied user, they're going to end up uninstalling it and say, I can't use it under normal circumstances, you know, I'll run the risk of getting infected. So that's one aspect of this, that they are under pressure to be able to deal with situations like that. And then you have these more sophisticated pieces of malware that do the escalation and embed themselves into the kernel. And so it's continually an effort to try to get one step under right down to the master boot records that we've been, you know, seeing a lot of the malware has. So. On one hand, I'm kind of in their defense. <laughs> on the other hand, it's a, actually a very good example of where security is really important. Right, right. right. I, I think that's a really good, uh, really good um, Yeah, it's a really uh, good presentation, study. too. I'd recommend people go check it out, because he's got a lot of interesting slides, describes mm -hmm. how the different types of exploits against the different uh, antivirus engines and how uh, you would go about it. So it's interesting. Very good stuff. So Matt, let's go back to you here, and I guess um, there's always somebody trying to be an imposter of some shape or other, and uh, who would have thought <laughs> they were trying to be like Google? Well, everyone wants to be like Google, uh, but here in particular, um, people are trying to be like the Googlebot. Right. Googlebot is it's basically the bots that Google uses to spider different websites, build mm -hmm. out its record of what sites are where, and give you the results that you get when you go and use Google as a search engine. Now, uh, security firm Encapsula did a little bit of work looking at the use of the Googlebot user agent string. Now, for those who aren't familiar, the user agent string is anytime an HTTP request is made, um, the client typically sends a user agent header which says, I am Internet Explorer, I'm Firefox, I'm mm -hmm. Opera, whatever browser you happen to be, to identify to that server so the server can serve you content more correctly for your browser or log see how many people are using i.e. versus Firefox, many different uses. Um, turns out, according to Encapsula, that about 4% of the requests that they saw that claimed to be the Googlebot 
were not. They were imposters. Hmm. Now, it's, it's interesting that they found this out because there are many reasons why someone would want to look like the Googlebot. Um, some websites behave differently when you reach them as Google. For example, mm -hmm. if you're, you want your website to be indexed fully by Google to bring people to your site, um, but then maybe you'd want them to hit up against a, a login page and say, well, you're not logged in, so you really actually can't browse it as a right. user. Um, but Googlebot would be able to index all of it because it, it's Google. Mm. Um, so effectively an authentication bypass, or at least you know, perhaps in a weak way. But in a weak way it is. Right. So there are lots of little um, leniencies that websites will give to Googlebots to mm -hmm. allow them to, to, to enable to bring up their rank on Google. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, people are using it for things like spam, DDoS, scraping of content, and other right. pseudo-malicious but not quite malicious uses. Um, DDoS is kind of interesting because I suppose the, the point is that you wouldn't want to filter out, even if you're in the middle of a DDoS attack and you're handling tons and tons of requests, right. you still want Google to be able to scrape your site because you don't want to be losing out in the rankings. Mm. Now, they, they had some suggestions. Um, first off, some Googlebot fakes are poorly coded. If you take a look at the, the other headers in those fields, you can mm -hmm. see clearly that this is not Google. Uh, it's some sort of custom code. Right. Um, other suggestions would be to take a look at the, the originating IP or AS number because Google owns very specific sections of the internet and mm -hmm. not other ones. So if you're seeing something coming from some home connection, most likely it's not actually Google. There are other ways to tell the differences. Right. Um, rate of, of connections, things like that. So mm -hmm. it's not impossible to tell these imposters from the real ones, uh, but it will take some work. Right. And, and, well, and that's part of how we make a living, right? <laughs> Looking for those subtle differences. And it is actually, it, and, and that's a good example you pointed out that um, whereas they may be using the, the, uh, the, the indicator that there are other things in the coding that are indicators, indications that it is uh, an imposter. And uh, that's quite often the case. Now, obviously, if the attackers want to get very um, sophisticated about their, their activities, they would have the opportunity to try to mimic things better, but inevitably that there at least are some things that you can pick up on that are useful, but as you point out, you have to really study it. You have to have a good understanding of what is normal and to be able to uh, differentiate the two. It's going to be a cat and mouse game, I believe. Mm -hmm. But the, the end thing is that even if they try and look as much like Google as they possibly can, they've got another ulterior motive that they have to act on, otherwise there's no point to it. So mm -hmm. up until the point where they, they take that action, they may look completely like Google, except maybe for the IP address ranges. But it's mm -hmm. as soon as they do that, they take that action that maybe you can stop them at the last second. Mm -hmm. Now, it, I guess they, they allude to spamming and DDoS attacks. I was kind of trying to understand a little bit better. I mean, what, what it, is, it, is it the recipient of that traffic that is uh, of that spidering, or is it that somebody could be able to use your website more effectively for other types of attacks? Uh, I believe my... My understanding of it is that for spamming, at least, um, using the Googlebot may bypass certain web application firewalls and certain tricks that are being okay. used to prevent, you know, people pounding on the site and trying mm -hmm. to push things into comment fields or, you know, you know, you see comment spam all the time, that right. kind of spam. Right. Um, as for a DDoS, um, like I said before, if you've got a huge volume of traffic coming to your site, you want to still be able to host your site and provide service to legitimate users mm -hmm. at the same time that you're filtering out and blocking all the malicious stuff. Right. And a Googlebot request may look more legitimate to whatever system you're using for DDoS defense than some randomized user agent or something mm -hmm. that's supposed to be a browser. Right, right. You know, I had a, a, uh, 
an organization that was basically suggesting uh, some type of a mechanism for uh, you know changing the way a network looks to be able to protect it. And uh, I guess my observation has been, and I think you'd agree, is that the uh, more and more of the attack activity has been not necessarily an exploit, but abusing an application in a way that you really hadn't previously anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like this is a basically a case like this where they're trying to abuse the application and on top of that using this as a little bit of a lever to get relief. Sure. Sound right? Yeah. All right, good. And I think that's, uh, it's, it's nice, it's good to see observations like this in the uh, industry as well. So because I think it's really starting to pick up on some of the, on the things that we really need to be paying attention to from a security standpoint as we continue forward in this endeavor. So now I guess on a good news level, <laughs> we're celebrating some uh, an anniversary in effect. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. To the, to the staple firewall, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, actually, uh, Intel put out uh, a kind of history chart. It's kind of a nice little uh, histogram of the uh, evolution of the firewall. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's an interesting little you know, chart to look at to kind of see how we got to where we are today mm -hmm. um, from the very beginning of things. I highlighted a couple of the, the interesting items here. So the first stateful firewall was in around 1989. I actually remember right. those days, yeah. uh, dating myself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was kind of engineered out of AT&T Bell Labs, uh, where we come from, mm -hmm. uh, Bill Cheswick and Steve uh, Bellavin yeah. uh, kind of came up with the first stateful firewall from there, and you know, from in terms of what it, prior to that, there was a lot of things going on of just kind of port filtering mm -hmm. uh, or IP filtering, where they didn't really kind of keep track of the state of the connection. Was a SYN sent and a SYNAC received, and those kinds of things. And mm -hmm. this was kind of the first evolution of that. Let's try to figure out if the connection's for real or not. Right. And, and we got some state here, uh, and keep track of that so that we know we can continue this connection when the next packet comes through or whatever. Yeah, now help me understand, I think one of the things that you, you tend to try to do with a stateful firewall, because you're generally in an enterprise where a firewall is trying to protect things or maybe it's protecting access to a server or something along those lines, uh, you know, a con connection comes in uh, and you decide whether you want to let the packet through, but the trick is, what do you accept back, right? I mean, that really what we're trying to achieve here with the statefulness? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, I mean, it's controlling the flow of the session, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, right, so the keeping track, and, and I mean, this is my understanding of the statefulness, is a connection goes outbound, and what you're really trying to do is keep track that, yes, I did want to communicate Right, a to sin was actually sent, so I'm waiting for a sin act to come right. back to me. And, you know, I have kind of a state table that I, in my firewall that says, mm -hmm. okay, I know I sent a sin, out to this IP address, I should be expecting a Synac. So when it comes back, I'm going to allow it to come back through again. But if mm -hmm. I get a Synac just from people at random, I'm going to right. pitch it on the floor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the notion there. But one of the hazards of that is that you have to have the state space to be able to track those. And so if somebody wants right. to try to do something like a denial of service attack, one of the mechanisms is to try to exhaust that state space and uh, send the thing into kind of a crazy state of disarray or, or perhaps even crash and then you have to bring everything back up. Right, right. So you want to try to have uh, mechanisms around this. So, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing no, that's from fine, your story that's fine. <laughs> We're starting at the very beginning, the genesis of the firewall right. really, for the most part. Yeah. And it really is kind of the grounding principle from 
where all firewalls kind of evolved to today. Uh, they mm -hmm. all still have that basic functionality. Um, things you know evolved beyond that to uh, things like application level firewalls in the 1994 timeframe. Those are the things like proxies, reverse proxies, things mm -hmm. that are looking at the application layer, not just the TCP, the IP layer down down there, it's mm -hmm. really looking at the application layer, what's happening, what the requests are, should I allow this through or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 1998, one of the big revolutions, I think, was uh, Snort, you know, open source project came out with their IDS, some IPS functionalities that could be done with that and other products that evolved out of that space, which are real signature-based things. So they're really in that DPI kind of thing where they're looking in the packets trying to figure out, is this you know, a known vulnerability that someone's trying to leverage against me here? Mm -hmm. If so, I want to drop this packet or I want to do something based on uh, seeing that. Uh, 2003, uh, next generation firewalls, next generation, um, that term gets used a lot, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of uh, evolved and those kind of integrated a lot of the functions of the application level firewall with the uh, signature kind of DPI stuff that Snort and some of these other products did. Right. So they kind of married those uh, notions together. And then 2006, uh, we saw things like web application firewalls, WAFs we like to call them, emerge, mm -hmm. uh, which are kind of like your reverse proxies um, and all of these other products together uh, in addition to looking, at thing, looking for things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting. So they have some kind of intelligence where they're not looking for static signatures but they're looking more behaviorally as, does this look like something yeah. fishy going on here in the way they're trying to interact with me? Um, you know, so really going, escalating into that application layer higher and higher to, to defend whatever's behind it that they're trying to protect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, one of the things that I, I've kind of felt there's been a bias in the past that, you know, the firewall kind of sits on the edge of the enterprise and is mostly allowing the trusted internal users to go out to certain places and get stuff back. Uh, but I think it was that sort of the WAF, the web application firewall that really kind of is specialized toward a server and allowing only, you know, or more so perhaps filtering out the bad stuff that you don't want to get in, the injection attacks right. and that. Right, protecting some kind of server or device that's servicing things right. as opposed to protecting an enterprise where you have yeah. a bunch of users egressing out of your network or right. something. And firewalls had always been used for that application previously, perhaps not a stateful one, but certainly to control which ports or the uh, applications were exposed to or the servers were exposed to. But um, the, the notion of actually filtering what goes into the application itself, the URLs and the content associated with those, I think was a shift, so. Right, and then I guess the, the last comment I would make is, you know, since the firewall did kind of somewhat emerge out of AT&T Labs uh, originally. Uh, just you know, recommend people check out. There's still a lot of relevance to the Firewalls Internet Security yep. book, uh, Repelling the Wily Hacker from Cheswick Bellavin um, and Ruben. And um, they, uh, they have a lot of interesting little stories in there too. It's not like um, a super technical plan-by-plan plan kind of thing, no. but it's an interesting read because they kind of yeah. give it in a story. It's more of a story. Yeah, it's more and of a story. It, is, than, uh, um, it actually is a good story, and I think, I think still relevant today yeah. to understand how uh, attacks manifest themselves and how they were in the process of uh, protecting against that. And I think you have pictured here is actually the cover for the second edition. Right. That was the edition of Avi Rubin as a uh, participant in that. Right. And uh, definitely a very good, um, very good read. 
So let's, uh, I guess, shift back to you here, Matt. And um, I guess uh, the story headline here is that uh, this uh, could allow millions of infections. I'd like to get you, your opinion on this. <laughs> well, let's, let's explain what the, the problem is itself. Yeah. The Blue Box Security is calling this the fake ID vulnerability. Mm -hmm. uh, this relates to the Android operating system. Uh, after 2.1, uh, I believe it's mitigated in the latest versions of Android. Uh, but what this is, is it's a vulnerability in how the certificate checking is performed on certain pieces of code within Android. Uh, mm -hmm. Certain vendors are allowed a little more leeway in the permissions that their applications have within the operating system. And they're, mm -hmm. they're very specific vendors. Um, but what it seems is that after 2.1, the certificate checking that validated that applications really belong to these vendors was not being done properly. So there mm -hmm. is a mechanism by which you can um, sign an application using uh, a fake certificate, somehow tying it to the actual vendor certificate, and then the validation is performed improperly, giving your application the same rights as if it belonged to one of these right. trusted vendors. And apparently some applications have some special privileges. Yep, some? so some of them have uh, special privileges within the operating system. Uh, one in particular, I can't remember the name of the vendor, has uh, rights to use the NFC readers on some phones. Mm -hmm. uh, NFC being the near field communications, which is used for payment systems, mm -hmm. uh, a number of different applications. Typically a very trusted uh, function within the phone. All right. So it's, it's akin to super user, if not admin, right? I would, I would go as far as to say Power super user. Power user, at least. Power user. <laughs> Power user. So, so they're given special uh, privileges to the applications. This is a case where you kind of fake out who, you're, who you are in terms of the application owner or the, the provider and uh, able to get some privileges that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. Now, but there still is a, a need to distribute this, right. this malware device. somehow. Correct, and Google is aware of the issue. They, uh, Blue Box reported this to them back in April. Mm -hmm. uh, Google has been sending out patches, and I believe um, at least one vendor has actually started pushing those patches to their users for those devices, which is great. Good. I mean, the, the patching process has been done correctly here. So, so kudos to everybody involved. If you, if you were to distribute this, I believe, you know, Google is very aware of this at this point. I mm -hmm. can't see this making its way into the store, the Play Store. Right. So the most likely place you would catch something like this would be in a third-party app store. All right. So it, it is conceivable that considering there are basically perhaps billions of, of devices out there or, you know, getting on the order of uh, high hundreds of millions, mm -hmm. uh, there is a possibility, and that's globally, there would be a possibility of getting some significant number of devices infected, but I suspect that millions is perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration. It I mean, really you need a headline to really capture people. You do. Um, <laughs> and the, the devices are, to be, to be fair, um, unpatched and therefore vulnerable. It's mm -hmm. the, the situation which you'd have to place the device into that drastically limits the number of devices that right. I think are really, uh, I, I can't say vulnerable or susceptible, but mm -hmm. likely. And I think, that's, uh, I think that's testimony for the uh, notion of security and layers. It is to not depend on any one mechanism to protect. They could have made the option that this, this signature on this software is the only protection and you can get it from any place without any other controls. But they are putting other controls in place to help to protect against uh, situations like this. And I think that's a very healthy trend that's, uh, that's come along, at least in the mobile device space. You know, we're really worried about, you know, the proliferation of large, large numbers of devices compared to computers and having uh, the potential to create havoc from a malware point of view. 
it certainly is still a possibility, but to a large extent, this, uh, this has been a pretty decent environment in terms of curtailing or suppressing the opportunity to get large deployments of any given piece of malware. We, uh, we hope it continues that way. All right, so let's take a quick look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And um, I, I guess what I'll point out right up front here is that uh, if you've seen last week's report, uh, there's gonna be some subtle differences here, but not really fundamentally changes into, in the uh, types of activity we're seeing here. So what I did is I took a little bit of a different perspective. So if you wanna look at last week's or perhaps even the weeks before, uh, you'll see a lot of the same themes, but uh, again, a little different perspective here. So uh, first one here is scan probes on port 53 TCP, that's DNS. And this is one where we've kind of suspected that the activity was an, att an attempt to uh, uh, map the domain name space. I'm not so sure that that's actually the case here now based on the uh, uh, additional information and some additional analysis here. You know, this activity is primarily a single source in China and uh, the same source is actually scanning a number of other ports, port 21, 22, 23, 25, uh, 53 as we mentioned here, port 80, 443, 3389, and 8080. So that, it, that suggests that you know, it's looking for an array of applications and perhaps isn't really doing a domain, domain space uh, uh, mapping so much as it is uh, perhaps looking for uh, popular ports that may have sources of data. So uh, that's uh, sort of one observation here. I guess the uh, second observation is that uh, whereas we've seen sort of periodic scanning activity on a daily basis, it's not exactly daily periodic activity. And it looks like it's working on perhaps a bit like a 23 hour interval. And there is some uh, benefit to doing this uh, if you're you know, scanning the internet. That is, uh, you know, in certain parts of the world, you're likely gonna have machines that are turned off at particular times of the day. And uh, so by rotating, basically doing, uh, you know, sequencing on a shorter than 24 hour interval, it allows you, and you wouldn't want a multiple 24, but um, something that's um, sort of a, a mutually prime, it gives you the benefit of basically rotating that scanning through the hours of the day and still having the benefit of some uh, time in between to either, you know, maybe crunch the data or do other processing or perhaps just, uh, uh, lay low for a while. So uh, we're continuing to see this activity. I'm showing 10 days of activity so you can kind of see that sequencing of activity as it's going along and how it, um, you know, at certain points here in the middle of the graph, it's uh, aligning directly with the beginning of the day where at the uh, edges of the graph, it's uh, kind of midday that that activity is taking place. Uh, next item here is there's a somewhat similar theme. It's scan probes on port 53. It's actually a part of the same activity, in fact. What I wanted to show you is sort of the uh, correlation between some of the ports that are taking place. So as I mentioned, uh, scanning on port 21, 22, 23, 25, 53, 80, 443, 3389, and 8080. Now, a lot of those ports have too much activity on it to really see the effect of the scanning activity from this particular IP address. But uh, so I picked out a few of them here. There's 53, 21, and 25 that don't really have a whole lot of scanning activity on them. And you can see there's a very close correlation in the activity there that is uh, not exact all the time. Uh, you can see that there is actually, uh, for example, there's some differences in time where they're doing the scanning uh, on some of these ports. But uh, certainly there's a strong correlation in the uh, behavior. So they must be watching the show. 
Those uh, are the ones be. that are in our hit parade every week. <laughs> could be watching the show yeah, and... Uh, 5900. Yeah, come on guys. <laughs> uh, next one here is scanning on ports, uh, basically port 8081 TCP and 3128 TCP. Now, we've been uh, talking about this one for a while. 8081 is basically an uh, alternative proxy port. Uh, not a particularly popular one, but it's certainly one, 8080 is, I think, a more popular port for that. And then uh, 3128, as uh, John has rightfully pointed out a number of times, is associated with squid proxy. Uh, it's curious to find that the, uh, actually the, most of the sources that are actually doing this scanning activity are one and the same. That is, uh, it's the it's same group, it's, and they're actually scanning 3128, 8080, and 81. Uh, and also scanning port 80, I didn't include that for the analysis here because it uh, just tends to uh, confuse the situation. Same thing, there's so much activity going on in port 80 that uh, it's really difficult to sort of report that. Now what we're looking at here are actually the number of sources that are doing the scanning activity. So uh, it, similar to the previous case where we had a single address doing uh, scanning on a, on a set of ports, this is a case where you have actually a whole array of source addresses that are doing the scanning, starting and stopping effectively at the same time. Uh, so there's sort of a botnet associated with this at the very least. And you can see that there's, again, a big strong correlation between the ports that we're showing here. That's 3128, 8080, and 8081. Now, 8080 has a lot of other scanning activity. You can see the, the regular noise level. That's the red line here. And then the 3128 and 8081 they're actually overlapped to the extent here that you can't even really tell that there are two lines here, but there's actually a blue line and a green line that are uh, overlaying on top of each other here. So very strong correlation in the activity that we're seeing here. And uh, I guess uh, what we have um, suspected is that they're actually looking for proxy activity. And John, I guess I'll defer to yeah, you. Yeah, so I took a look in our honeypots this morning right? when you had pointed this out to me. and. Um, you, you know, in the 8080, 8081, 3128 space, I was looking at these Chinese IPs coming in in the same ranges. There's, you know, several of them involved. Mm -hmm. um, but across all of those ports, we had seen these requests for this particular um, URL. And it mm -hmm. looks strange. However, uh, it's for hotel.qunar.com with some parameters at the end there. The reason they're doing that, we, I suspect, is not so much anything special with that particular URL other than they know what to expect if they go to fetch this URL. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're doing it in such a way that they're asking it as though it was a proxy. So they're saying right. get with the full URL there, a proxy would you know fetch that for you if it was a real proxy. A web server would say, I don't know what that is, mm -hmm. and give me a 404 response back. So um, you know, basically they go ask for this uh, URL. If they get it back, uh, there'll be certain things that they know to look for in the response, the body to say, okay, I actually got it back. Let me mm -hmm. mark this down. This is a real proxy. And then they'll probably use that for something right. later on as part of their proxy network that they're, they're putting together. Yeah. Um, so other people have been talking right. about this on the internet as well, that they've seen these types of probes coming in as well. Mm -hmm. So they could use any website for this sort of test, right? Yeah, they could. they could. And for all I know, this, I'm not familiar with this particular website. However, it looks kind of like maybe a, Priceline equivalent in China mm -hmm. okay. kind of thing for hotel and transportation, airfare type thing. So maybe that's really popular over there. Just like, you know, it would be like an actor here in the U.S. using a very popular travel website like for their own purposes. <laughs> or like Google, yeah. You know, anything like that. Whereas over there, maybe that's real popular as well. Yeah. I don't know. Could be. Yep. 
Okay. So uh, going on to the next item here, scan probes on port 1900 UDP, that's uh, SSDP, which we've uh, talked about this one a number of times as well. This is one that uh, we generally associate this activity with, uh, it has the potential to be used in reflection attacks. And so uh, basically some uh, security research organizations have been deliberately probing this port uh, to see how many devices are accessible from the internet responding here so that uh, we'd have an assessment of what the risk is from a, uh, from a uh, reflection attack uh, capability might be. Uh, we have not seen reflection attack activity or at least nothing that was, would be significant associated with this port. Uh, the one thing that's changed here is that uh, where we used to see a U.S. Uh, basically security service company doing this probing activity, we also see a Russian company doing that as well. But they both appear to be uh, legitimate security service companies that are do doing the majority of this probing, not necessarily the whole of it. So I would generally define this activity as uh, innocuous, even though you'll probably start to see a, uh, a Russian IP address in that probing activity if you're watching it. Yeah, if you have that port open, it's uh, probably hard to know that you have it open, uh, you know, at your perimeter or whatever, but you probably want to close it. Yeah, you, absolutely. Because yeah, it could be used true. as part of a reflection vector at mm -hmm. some point once bad actors should use it for that purpose. Yeah, well, that makes me think back to our Internet of Things discussion right. earlier. But <laughs> okay, next item here is uh, scan sources on port 808 TCP. That's Microsoft Net TCP port sharing service. And uh, so basically this is a, uh, a uh, application that allows you to share, have more than one application share the same port. It's uh, kind of a way to subvert firewalls. <laughs> mm -hmm. or even proxies. Um, it subverts probably a long word here, or, or a strong word in this particular case, but the, the intent here is to be able to have uh, multiple applications to be able to operate on the same port. But ultimately what this amounts to is, uh, I guess, somebody's uh, looking to see why there might be, uh, or to see what applications might have this exposure. It's not a significant amount of probing activity. There's a, there are occasional cases where I would describe it as aggressive probing, but uh, it's predominantly from a single source in China that's performing this activity. Interesting that it's 808 and it's one character off from something like 8080 or 81. Well, it, it, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that somebody might be probing have uh, there might have been a typo or something yep. along those lines although uh, if you look at the activity here it is spurious enough that you would expect there's there's probably something behind that I'm not sure how consistently it's been the same source that's been doing this we'd have to take a little closer look but uh, for the most part um, you know there, there's it's not none and none is um, there certainly are ports that have no activity of this sort so there's some there's some level of interest perhaps not a whole lot and uh, so let's take a look at the uh, top 10 most probe ports here. And uh, basically at the top of the list, we have port 22 followed by port 23. You know, we had reported a little while ago, again, on our topic of the Internet of Things, uh, port 5000 had a little surge in activity in terms of the number of sources at the very least. And that seems to have uh, tapered off. So it's not showing up as high on the list here. Uh, but port 23 moved up a few slots. Uh, followed by 1433 TCP, 3389 TCP, 445, 53 UDP, 8080 TCP, and then 80 TCP, and then uh, 3306 TCP, which would, that would be Microsoft, excuse me, that's uh, MySQL database. Um, and then taking a little bit of a closer look, uh, since we had the case where uh, port 23 moved up a little bit here, 
Uh, let's take a quick look at that. And I thought it would be useful to take a look at the uh, last year of activity on port 23. You know, uh, I think last week we looked at port 22 and I think a week before that, a, another port uh, uh, perhaps in this, in this group here. And uh, clearly it's a, a very similar theme where over the last year here, we've seen a significant growth in activity. Now, port 23 seems to show basically a big kind of hump in growth and then that's uh, sort of flattened off a little bit. And I was also looking at port 3389, seems to have a sort of a similar characteristic and behavior. But uh, again, continuing to emphasize that this uh, internet of things and the worms associated with that are, uh, are continuing to be uh, uh, pretty active. Next item here is the uh, most sources doing that probing. And at the top of the list, we have port 443 TCP. This is a continuation of the activity we've been reporting earlier. That is uh, most of the sources, almost, almost all of the sources are in Argentina. Not a lot of probing associated with it, but certainly a lot of sources associated with it. Uh, followed by port 23, we just talked about that one, 445 TCP, 80 TCP, 8080 TCP, and then uh, 2715, which is a, an innocuous set of activity. And then we talked about earlier the 8081 activity and the 3128 activity as well. So they all made it into the uh, top 10 list. That's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack@list.att.com. To get in uh, a notice of new episodes, follow us on Twitter. Uh, our handle is at ThreatTrack. Uh, ThreatTrack videos available at att.com slash ThreatTrack, as well as uh, on YouTube at the ATT Tech channel. Uh, there's also an audio-only version on iTunes. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thanks, Matt. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.